Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I also have a blog that you might want to check out, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is March 3rd, 2022, and we are now just uh, two days out from one of the biggest events in modern American sports history, and that is Coach K's last game in Cameron Indoor Stadium. And in this episode, I just want to talk a little bit about Coach K's career and his legacy. And the way that I see this now is not primarily through a basketball-related lens. That's obviously the centerpiece of his legacy. But I want to talk about it in terms of his relationships with institutions, because one of the things that Coach K has been able to do over the course of his coaching career is to really use the success that the program has had and take the success of Duke basketball and make institutions better, not just Duke University. I'm going to um, focus on his relationship to Duke University, but other institutions. And I'm going to come back around uh, to that towards the end of the episode. But to get to that, I really uh, want to talk a little bit about some big picture themes and some qualifications about what I have to say, because I'm not speaking for anybody. I'm speaking for myself. I I don't have access to any revealed truths from the inner sanctum of uh, Coach K's world uh, or the Duke basketball world. I'm basing my observations on my personal experience and my life experience, and those include my connections to Duke University and Duke basketball. So I guess before I issue my caveats, I should give a little bit of background in my relationship to Durham, to Duke, and, and to Duke basketball. And I grew up in Durham, and I started going to Duke basketball games in 1967. And the Duke coach then was Vic Bubis. And Coach Bubis had an amazing run at Duke, and he was building what uh, people at the time referred to as the UCLA of the East. And he had some incredible teams and, and went to the Final Four. And then it was at that time that I really fell in love with Duke basketball. And in 1967, a point guard from Pittsburgh, a guy named Dick DiVenzio, came to Duke. And Dick was one of the top players in the country coming out of high school. And he was choosing between Duke and UNC and UCLA. The John Wooden coached UCLA teams, those great teams of the 1960s. And he chose Duke. And I've mentioned Dick quite a bit in this podcast because he became an athlete's rights pioneer in the 1980s. And really, I don't think it has gotten the, the credit that he's due. But I wound up becoming friends with Dick and I helped him a bit with some of his athlete's rights stuff. And he was really my inspiration in reengaging with athletes rights. Dick passed away from cancer about 20 years ago, and his voice was silenced. But that was really my connection to to Duke basketball. And uh, for most of my childhood in Durham, I was within walking distance of the the Duke campus. And for a number of years, I lived about a block and a half from East Campus. And so I just grew up literally in Duke's backyard. And I had some built-in Duke connections. My, My father went 
to Duke in the 1950s. And while he was there, he met my mother, who was a Durham native, and they they got married and then spent most of their adult lives in Durham. And my dad had season tickets to Duke games back then. They weren't as difficult to come by as they are now. But I, I loved going to games in Cameron and then Coach Bubis left and uh, Bucky Waters took over for Coach Bubis and I uh, followed the teams through Coach Waters' career. And then they, there was an interim coach, uh, Neil McGahee, and uh, Coach McGahee held that spot for a year. And then Duke hired Bill Foster and Foster really started to expand Duke's footprint in the recruiting market and it really changed Duke's place in the basketball world. When he signed Gene Banks in 1976, and Gene's from Philadelphia, and he was one of the most highly recruited high school athletes in the 1970s. And everybody wanted him. And he's an amazing player, an amazing athlete. But the other thing that was really important about Gene is that he was the first true blue chip African-American player that Duke had ever signed. They, they had a, a handful of African-American players going back to the 1960s that had, they were pretty good players, but nobody on the level of Banks. And it was a watershed event in, in Duke basketball history. And UNC had crossed that barrier in the 1960s, a decade earlier, when Coach Smith, Dean Smith, recruited and signed Charlie Scott, who was one of the best players in the history of the ACC. And he played in the in the mid to late 60s. And I got to see him play when they, when Carolina came to Duke. But Gene was really important to Duke basketball in ways that went beyond what he added to an already very talented team. That was the Mike Jeminski and Jim Spinarkle. And you had John Harrell and then Bob Bender. And then when Gene came in, he was joined by Kenny Denard, who was a phenomenal player as well. Much better athlete than he got credit for. And he had a, a run in the NBA. And I just loved the way Kenny played. He was wide open on and off the court. But... And that team, of course, went to the national championship game in 1978, and John Feinstein wrote a book about that season and that team called Forever's Team. It's a great book. But when Coach Foster left Duke, and he announced that in 79, and Duke started looking for a replacement coach that turned out to be Coach K, it was really important that Gene had broken that barrier, and Duke was uh, a legitimate competitor in the market for the best African-American players in the country. And uh, there's another player that Coach K inherited, and he's so important, and that is Vince Taylor. He was one of the top high school players in the country, just an exceptional athlete and uh, versatile. He could do everything. Hell of a defensive player. And he's African-American. Without Gene Banks breaking the door down, Coach Foster doesn't sign Vince Taylor. And without Gene and Vince, Coach K doesn't sign Johnny Dawkins. And uh, Coach K, who started his first season, was in 1980. His first big recruit, and I would argue the most important in the history of Duke basketball, was Johnny Dawkins. And when Johnny signed uh, some other players in that exceptional class, that, that 1986 class that went to the national championship game, they wanted to play with Johnny, you know, and no basketball player in their right mind wouldn't want to play with Johnny Dawkins. He was just a special, special player. And I'm not going to get into trying to compare players from different eras, but when I look back on that era and the ACC was loaded, you had Ralph Sampson, 
at UVA. You had Glenn Bias coming into the, to the league at Maryland. You had James Worthy at UNC. You had a guy named Michael Jordan. I think you may have heard of him at UNC. And uh, Johnny was at that level. And I remember the first time I played against him when he came to campus after he signed. It was in the summer. And Man, wow. It was just an experience. I, I honestly had not seen that kind of uh, athleticism before. He had a unique kind of athleticism, and it wasn't just his quickness and his leaping ability. He always kept you off balance. He was almost impossible to defend. But when Johnny signed, you had other players like Mark Allery and Jay Billis and Bill Jackman from Nebraska and Weldon Williams from Chicago and David Henderson from North Carolina. They all fell in and became probably the most important recruiting class in Coach K's history. And there were just some exceptional players there. Mark Allery was one of the best players in the country and one of my favorite all-time Duke players. He was just so understated, but he was an exceptional athlete. And it was disguised because he was so smooth and he did so many things so well. I'm going to talk about my senior year in this episode because that was Coach K's breakthrough year. I'm going to talk about some of those guys in more detail. But with Johnny and, and Mark on the court, you always had a chance against any team in the country. So I, I want to talk about Coach K's first few years before we had that breakthrough year, my senior year. And I, I was there for that entire time. And my perspective was a little different because I went from walk-on to scholarship player to team captain. When you're a walk-on, you really are looking from the outside in many ways. You have a seat at the table, but you don't speak kind of was spoken to is kind of the relationship that you have. And I understood that. And I'm going to talk about those years with, with some caution for, for a variety of reasons. And this ties into some of the caveats about talking about a, a career like Coach K's, because his first few years were really not ideal in terms of the success that was visible to the public and, or the lack of success as they perceived it. So I'm going to just hit on a couple of broad things. But one of the caveats that, that I want to issue, and there's so much being written right now about Coach K, and there will continue to be. Not too long ago, I was on campus and I was at the, the student store. And when you walk into the student store, there's this massive rack of books, Duke-related books. And there's really a cottage industry of books about Duke basketball from all uh, perspectives. And I don't read most of those books. I've read a few but I pretty much steer away from that whole genre, whether it's pumping up the program or criticizing the program or, or some of both. And uh, over the years, I'll occasionally get a request. I'll get these calls or emails out of the blue from people who are writing books or doing work about, on Duke basketball and were asking for a, a quick quote, like when Coach K announced his retirement. I had some local TV newspaper people ask me for a quick quote, and I just said, there's no way I can adequately capture Coach K's career and, and legacy in a soundbite. It's impossible. And I tried to explain why, and when they realize I'm not giving them a quote, they just want to get off the phone and go to the next guy. And uh, this book came out recently on Coach K by uh, former ESPN writer Ian O'Connor. And he's a great writer. I, I read some of his stuff when he was writing for ESPN. I always admired his writing. He did a big book on Bill Belichick, but he reached out to me. I think he was trying to get former players and I think he just went down the list and 
when he called, he was, he was very nice and it was a cordial conversation, but I just politely declined because I, I just, even in that setting, I just didn't think that there was any way that I could control my narrative. And I had no idea what this thing was going to look like. And one of my first questions was, is, does Coach K know what you're doing? Is the program on board with this? And what's your end game here? How, what's your starting point? What, you, what do you see as your end game? And he said that and it was an accurate characterization that the program wasn't really part of the, the book, but they weren't in any way trying to discourage anybody associated with the program from talking to O'Connor. So I politely declined. And I haven't read the book. I've had a few former teammates who have looked at it, and I'll get a text here and there. But that whole genre has its limitations, in part because you can't have a complete picture unless you talk to all the people who are involved in the events that you are describing and characterizing and to a certain extent judging. So I just, I would just prefer not to, to go there. And then another component of that is that for the players that were on Coach K's early teams, we experienced some, some not so great times. And we had a couple of losing seasons and to the outside world, it looked like we weren't making progress and we were. And there's been all this discussion about those years and Coach K's job being on the line and alumni demanding that he be fired. And I I wasn't really tuned into those discussions. And I, I certainly knew how the uh, team was being covered in the media. But I think some of that's overblown because the athletics director at the time, Tom Butters, he had Coach K's back. He hired Coach K. He saw something special and he wasn't going to wave the white flag in, in three years. And, and then he also knew one of those losing seasons came with this just exceptional class, the, the class of 86. And I think we finished that year 10 and 17. I think it was 10 and 17. And people looked at that and they were all worried about the future of Duke basketball. But what you could see from the inside out was that these guys, these freshmen who were just basically put on the floor and it was a baptism by fire in an exceptionally competitive ACC. People from the outside looking in couldn't see the tremendous growth in, in that group during that 10 and 17 season. And then the following year, their sophomore year, which was my senior year, that was the, the breakthrough year. And uh, that baptism by fire in 82, 83 really paid off in 83, 84. But, you know, an honest portrayal of those early years has to include some of the, the difficulties. And that's tricky territory. And I think uh, a lot of that is uh, really off limits for public discussion. And people talk about programs nostalgically and they talk about the family component of it. And being at that level, there is a family dynamic, but it's not necessarily always as in one big happy family, but all of the difficulties that families experience. And there is uh, conflict, there is disagreement, there is heartbreak that goes along with the joy and the beauty of a family. And I think there's much to be said for keeping all that in the family. And so many of these efforts by people outside of the program to analyze it and all that. Those efforts are really fool's gold in my judgment because there are different relationships, different layers of relationships, and no two of them are the same. And the family changes every year in, in, in college sports or, or team sports. And so you, you have dynamics that shift and change. And one of the amazing things about Coach K's career is that he's been able to manage 
all those different families and remain consistent with uh, a set of principles that have made him one of the best coaches in the history of college basketball. But another thing, and I guess this is in the nature of a caveat that I just want to mention as well, is that people can, who experience the same events can look at them with entirely different viewpoints. And I call it the Rashomon effect. And that's a reference to a Japanese movie that was made, I think it was the late 40s, early 50s or something like that. But it shows an event that occurs at a rural intersection and it's a violent act and there's a crime that's committed there. And the story is told five different ways through five different people who were uh, part of the that event, but had different roles in it. And they all had different stories. They all had a different narrative. And the same is true with all these attempts to try to write about Coach K's career and Duke basketball. And that is true even in the locker room level of those relationships. So coming up with a true consensual reality and history of those, those early years, I think is really a challenge. And my story may be different from the guy that was sitting in the locker room next to me or, or on the bench next to me. I, I think that what you get is a version that is uh, fraught with limitations. And I think that's just an important thing to keep in mind. But one of the things I took away from the, those early teams and, and those transition teams is that a coaching change can just be a bitch for everybody, not the, just the players who were recruited by a different coach and then come into a new coach, but also for the coach. It's a difficult transition for the coach and for the coach's family. And one of the things that when I look back now with the benefit of, of life experience is Coach K was really young when he got that Duke job. I think he was 32 or 33. I have a son who's going to be 30 this year. And I look at my son as in many ways still kind of a kid. And maybe that's a parental thing. But Coach K was young. And he was going from West Point to Duke University. And th those two environments could not be farther apart in terms of climate and culture and the kind of, of athletes that are drawn to those two environments. So Coach K inherited players that were in a different mold. So just some great players and, and phenomenal human beings. Just love those guys. But I would say with the exception of Gene Banks and Vince Taylor and probably Kenny Denard, from a basketball standpoint, Coach K wouldn't have recruited the other players that he inherited because they weren't suited to his system. And that's not a great fit when you have players who aren't suited to the new system. And I think a coach in that situation, and given the much different style of play that Coach K brought and the philosophy, man-to-man -man defense, team defense, and then motion offense, that was much different than the system that Bill Foster ran. And, and Foster recruited to his style of play and his tactical approach to the game. But if you're a new coach like that and, and a Coach K faces decision, do you focus on putting your system into place regardless of the personnel that you inherited? Or do you alter your system to accommodate the personnel? And he chose the former. He said the system needs to be put into place. And with the style of play that he brought and the tactical approach, and remember, this was when we didn't have a shot clock or a three-point line. And that man-to-man, -man, that team man-to-man -man system took years, really, to develop and then have a solid enough foundation that new players coming into it could learn quickly because you had a core of 
upperclassmen who really understood the nuances of team man-to-man defense. And it is much more complicated in real time than it looks when you're watching a game. And as the game has changed and the rules have changed, that type of man-to-man defense is harder to put into place, particularly with Coach K's model and the one-and-done. It's very difficult to, to keep a team defensive philosophy and continuity in that system. So he's had to make some adjustments with the rule changes and the and the roster instability that, that he's had for the last 10 years or so. But back then, it was a long-term commitment to putting in his particular style of play and his tactical philosophies. And Coach K made, I think, what history has revealed is the right choice. And he went with getting his system in place, even though he didn't have the personnel to run that system at the highest level. And the result of that was a couple of really bad losing seasons. And could he have tinkered with the system and and tried to hide some of the weaknesses that were revealed in the context of his system that were assets under Bill Foster's system, but were weaknesses in Coach K's system. Do you adjust your tactics and win a couple of more games? So if instead of going 10 and 17, we went 14 and 13, what does that get you? It It might get you an NIT bid, but it's not moving your program further. And when you look at the massive leap forward from 1982-83 to 1983-84, you see that that strategy paid off. And that core of players, that, that class of 86, when they came into their sophomore years, they just hit the ground running. And it was just really an amazing thing to see the growth from that freshman year to, to their sophomore year. And I was fortunate enough to have seen that and, and to be part of that. And my perspective on that the legacy now, and again, it was with the benefit of 42 years of hindsight, you know, at the time, uh, it was like this whirlwind, you know, in the transition years. And now with the benefit of some gray hair or no hair, in my case, I, I look back on that and see, yeah, that was the right decision for the progress of the program. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that 83-84 season towards the end of the episode, just to get some things in the record. Because one one of the things that's happened over time, over the decades, is that there's this unstated assumption that Duke basketball began in 1986 with that, that uh, amazing class that went to the national championship game in 86. And, and that's an unfortunate narrative, because I think there's some important lessons to come from the early years. And I think that the, my senior year and then the year after that sort of get lost. But those are really important years in, in the transition. And so I want to speak to why I think that's the case in a little bit. But now I, I want to talk about some of the qualities that I believe have influenced the success in his career and then his connection to institutions, because I think that's really the, the defining quality of Coach K's legacy is that he's made institutions better. And I, I want to talk about that. And then also some of the circumstances that existed when he took the job in 1980 that aren't directly related to to his teams and his coaching ability and Duke basketball per se, but they were important context for how Coach K and Duke University grew up together and influenced each other in this incredible tra- trajectory upward, both for uh, the institution and the program and then for Coach K personally. And the ambitions of Duke University as they expressed themselves in the late 1970s and heading into the 80s. And the ambitions of Coach K really influenced each other 
I think. And uh, so I'll get to that in a second. But in talking about some of the qualities that have made Coach K great, I'm going to use an interesting template. And this just came to me recently because I was, I've been going through some of my old stuff coming up on this historic game on Saturday. I've pulled out the boxes and, and looked through some of my old memorabilia. And among that, that memorabilia are my old playbooks. So every year we'd get this little folder, the little black or blue folder, and it's very small and it has pages that are nine by six, and they are full of some really cool stuff. And we've got the rules of the motion offense and and the man-to-man defense and some of the sets that we would use and some out-of-bounds plays and and all that, and and some motivational quotes that uh, Coach K has used. But also in, in these books are scouting reports of our opponents. And I I have scouting reports for some of the best players in the history of the college basketball in in these notebooks. And I have a scouting report on Michael Jordan, the best player in the history of the game. And no, I'm not going to read it to you. It's top secret. And it's also a futile gesture. There's no such thing as a scouting report on Michael Jordan. There's no playbook or secret recipe to uh, try to contain the or or stop the best player in the history of the game. You know, he was He was just on another planet. But in these books, I was was just going through one of them, and I I don't know, I think this may be from my senior year. But in the rules of the motion offense, and they're not even rules, they're principles. And one of the things that I think people don't understand about Coach K's coaching philosophy, he's not teaching a bunch of plays. A lot of coaches do that, and they overcoach. So the principles of the motion offense, they're not and offense. They are offense. And I'm looking at, there are 11 of them here. And again, on on a very small page, they are principles and they are the principles that apply across any system that a coach may run. And Coach K has very broad principles and he's recruited players that are very good at playing at that conceptual level and being able to make plays without having a play drawn up. But I'm going to use some of these principles to really define at a personal level why Coach K has been so good for so long. And one of the basic principles of the motion offense is keep balance and spacing. And one of the things that Coach K uh, was big on was keeping an even keel, trying to stay true to your principles and be as immunized as you can from external forces. Focus on your goal, but keep an even keel. Don't get too high when things go great. Don't get too low when things don't go so great. And he's been able to do that. And it's really a difficult thing to do, but I think that also ties into his self-discipline. He's very self-disciplined and balanced. Balance is so important. Another principle of the motion offense is readiness. So he says, when you receive the ball, face the basket, hold the ball for a count of two, unless you have a good scoring opportunity available right away. Be ready. And if you don't have that opportunity, give up the ball and move with a purpose. Okay, that's pretty simple stuff, but it's amazing how few players, even at the highest levels, adhere to that fundamental principle of readiness. And Coach K was always ready. He is always ready. So his balance combined with his readiness make him a pretty powerful force. And you combine that with his self-discipline and his focus. And he's got he's got this simmering fire 
Santa's always burning. His pilot light burns pretty hot, and it's always burning, and, and that's uh, important as well. And then the next thing, I think this may be the most important. This is a rule of motion offense, and that is communicate. Basketball is a game of communication, and you you don't really get a sense of this when you're watching a game on TV, and you would really have to be in an empty gym to understand how important and how powerful the communication is on the court all the time. Your task changes instantaneously as players move and the ball moves and your relationship to the ball changes. And the only way that you can play intelligent basketball, whether it's on the offensive side or the defensive side, is to communicate. And I think when you when I translate that principle to Coach K's personal strengths, that's, I think, across the board, whether you're talking to players from his early years, in the middle, the end, if you're talking to players who played on his Olympic teams, they would all say the same thing and that communication is so important. And then the another component of that communication was Coach K's ability to motivate. And I think that kind of pilot light really influences his motivational approach, but he also does that within this principle of keeping an even keel, keeping balance. And that's that's really a fine line there. And he has walked that perfectly for 42 years. And then Another principle that is fundamental to the rules of offense. These aren't, again, they're called motion rules. This is offense, what I'm describing to you. This is the essence of offense in the game of basketball. But uh, a part of that is purpose. Be purposeful. You move with a purpose. You don't just wander out on the court. In a similar vein, he, he talks about the use of the dribble, and Coach K was a point guard. But Coach K says you can dribble to bring the ball up the court, to improve a passing angle, take the ball to the basket, get balance on the floor, or get out of trouble. All those are purposeful. And if you're not dribbling for any of those purposes, then passing and let's let somebody else take the ball. And but that goes to to purpose and know what you're doing, know why you're doing it, and then do it with a productive purpose. And and that's how he approaches the game of basketball and his relationship to his players. And those principles at the interpersonal level, I think, and the combination of those principles, he, he has lived and he has he's honed over his career. And the combination of those things in one person is, is exceptional. And then there's, there's another quality there that's, that's not in the motion offense. I guess it's, it's implied in rules of offense. And that is adaptability. Adapt to the changing circumstances. And in a basketball game, the circumstances change with every dribble, every pass, every shot. And Coach K has just been brilliant in his adaptability. And you have to remember that the game of basketball has changed fundamentally since he started coaching in the 1970s. And that goes to the style of play, to the recruiting environment, to the importance of the sport of basketball, to institutional interests, and to the big-time college sports marketplace and the NCAA, to the fundamental rules changes that occurred in the 1980s with the addition of the three-point line and the shot clock. And then, of course, in the recruiting environment and this important change, at least at the, at the highest levels of recruiting, in 2005 when the NBA and the, the Players Association 
wanted to, I think, restrict the pipeline at a high school to try to protect their roster spots. And I understand that motivation because those roster spots are so hard to come by in the NBA. But this uh, one and done rule where you had to be 19 to be eligible for the NBA draft. And so you had the best talent coming out of high school, having to land in college. And Coach K, because he was recruiting the best players, he wound up in that market. And that is a unique market. And he has adapted through all of those changes. I'm not a huge fan of one and done. I honestly don't know how Coach K feels about it. I, you know, I like roster stability and I like having teams grow and having a relationship with a team. And, and that can't happen in, in the one and done market. But when change has come, instead of looking at that new environment and saying, that's ridiculous. And, and he's made some comments like when the three-point line came in, I don't think he was a huge fan in the shot clock. And I don't think uh, some of the best coaches in the game at the time felt that way. I know Coach Smith at UNC didn't feel that way. And Coach K kind of mocked the three-point line, but then he adapted and he changed. And that's what successful leaders do. That's my take on the personal qualities that have made Coach Case such an incredible coach and, and leader. So now I want to talk a little bit about some of these influences that were completely unrelated to basketball that operated at the time that Coach K came into the head coaching job at Duke that I think really had an influence on his trajectory, the tra trajectory of the game of basketball and the trajectory of Duke University. So let me start with the sports-related issues, and, and then I'm going to hit on two institutional issues. One is specific to Duke, one is more broadly applied to higher education. But remember that in 1979, ESPN launched, and that was a transformative event in college sports and the exposure opportunities that were available through uh, cable were really untapped and unlimited and it took ESPN a little while to kind of get its programming online. And uh, it had a contract for the NCAA basketball tournament, the men's basketball tournament, what is now known as March Madness, starting in 1980. So they were really progressive on college basketball at, at the time. And that coincided with the Board of Regents era. Remember the Supreme Court case in which powerful football interests sued the NCAA to strike down the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. That injunction, the initial lawsuit was filed in 1981, and the district court injunction went into effect in 1981. And then in 1984, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the 7-2 decision, found that the NCAA was violating antitrust laws and struck down its monopoly on televised football and left to the free markets the future of college football. And that was a fundamental transformation in the college sports marketplace. And why that's important for Coach K and for the game of basketball is that the NCAA had to find replacement revenue. They lost their cash cow, and it was a bitter loss for Walter Byers. He, that did not go down well with him, and he talks about that in his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct. So Walter Byers was a smart businessman. So what did he do? He started exploiting the ever-living hell out of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And it's my belief that some of these rules changes in 86-87 with the three-point line and the shot clock were designed to enhance the entertainment value of college basketball and make it look more like the professional game. And when it came to contracts for what became March Madness, Walter Byers was thinking big, the same way he thought about the TV contracts for big-time 
football. And then you saw heading into the 90s, these massive long-term escalating contracts with CBS. And that carried into 2010. Then Turner came on board and the tournament just exploded. But in 1984, my senior year, the NCAA tournament, the, the media rights to the NCAA men's basketball tournament were 15 million dollars. That's about $40 million today. And you compare that to what the tournament is worth now. It's worth over a billion dollars a year. And that growth, I think, is in large part a product of the, the Board of Regents decision and the NCAA's necessity to find replacement revenue. But the game became a, a much more important fixture in American culture, in the overall sports marketplace, and in the branding opportunities for the schools. And that is so important because the exposure that schools could get through the March Madness Tournament, which actually goes on for almost a month. So we had the ESPN Champ Week that had the conference finals, and then ESPN would do that week, and then there would be a transition into Selection Sunday, and then into the actual CBS and then Turner March Madness tournament that goes for three weeks. So you have a month of branding opportunities. And if you're successful in that tournament, you get enormous payoff at the branding marketing level. And that is gold. And this is occurring with live TV, which is the most powerful form of broadcast media. And, and sports media is really the last frontier for true live TV. And you get a month of it with this uh, emphasis on generating revenue from uh, Division One men's basketball. And then another thing happened, and this is Duke specific, and this really started, I think, in 1975, but Duke began to think strategically and long-term about its place in higher education. And it, it had been a very well-respected private university, liberal arts university. It had uh, developed a, a very strong medical center, so it was running with the big dogs in terms of research universities. And uh, I think it was in 1938 that they uh, were admitted into the Association of American Universities that I've talked about before. It's like the power five for uh, higher education, for research-oriented higher education. And when you look at the list of institutions, I think there are 64, 65, about the same number as are in the power five. But it's a very elite group, and you have the most powerful, prestigious universities in the country, and universities are begging to get into that elite group. And so Duke was in that group, but I think in the 1970s, they were looking at the place that they held in the higher education landscape, and they wanted to run with the top dogs. And at, at that time, Duke University was a really good university, but it wasn't an Ivy. It, it wasn't a, a Stanford. It wasn't in this, the class of the top public universities. And I think that Duke made the conscious decision that they were going to make structural changes to really go to that very top level in higher education. And they initiated a program called retrenchment. And that uh, term applies in the organizational context to organizations that are looking to streamline their operations and get rid of redundancies, get rid of programs that really aren't adding to the organization's goals. And in the Duke context, in 1979, former Chancellor Kenneth Pye, Dr. Pye, who uh, held a number of important positions at Duke, a brilliant guy, he came up with a document called Planning for the 80s. It came out in 1979 and was really the work product 
product for this move, movement that started in 1975. And it put on the chopping block some elements of the university, some, some departments and some programs that weren't necessarily in keeping with how these elite institutions were structured. And the way I characterize it is that Duke University wanted to stop looking like a small regional liberal arts college, a great liberal arts college. They wanted to look more like uh, Harvard and Princeton and Yale, and they were trying to make this bump up. And as part of that, they eliminated their education program. Their, they changed their forestry program. They eliminated nursing, which was part of the undergraduate population. They eliminated PE, and Duke has a great marine lab that was on the chopping block then. Thankfully, it survived. But when you look at the, the changes that Duke made, they were getting rid of the, the kinds of programs that uh, were important when Duke was founded in 1924 and served a more local interest. And I think they were saying, maybe this should be handled by the state schools. We're going to go lean and mean. We're going to focus on graduate education. We're going to focus on research. We're going to focus on bringing in eye-popping academic talent to raise our profile. And I think they were successful at that. I have my father's yearbooks from the 1950s. And when you go through them, half of the students are from the state of North Carolina. My freshman year in 1980, there were more admitted freshmen from the New York metropolitan area than from the state of North Carolina. And I think that's exactly what Duke was hoping to achieve. And it's expanded its footprint tremendously. And with the growing alumni base, it's it's now among those elite universities. And matter about the same time, Duke got a bunch of large gifts. Uh, J.B. Fuqua gave a bunch of money, I think it was $10 million in the early 80s for the business school. And that really raised the profile of the business school. The medical center was moving very quickly up to being one of the best uh, medical centers in, in the country. And so all these things were coming together at the same time. But there was purpose to what Duke University was doing. And then something else happened that I think influenced uh, Duke's trajectory as well that really dovetailed with the structural changes that they made through retrenchment. And that is that in, in 1983, U.S. News & World Report started ranking universities. And the, all these university leaders will look you in the face and deny that they look at or care about the rankings. And that's just BS. It's total BS. They are racing to the computer screen when those things come out. And it has become really a a litmus test, uh, for better or worse, a litmus test for the quality and prestige of your university. There's some objective standards like your board scores, your mean board scores, and your selectivity. What's the ratio of the people who apply to those who are accepted and the the lower that percentage, the more selective you are. And that is a a way to to measure your prestige. And then, of course, you have what other peer institutions think of you. What's your reputation? And all that is driven by how you're structured, but also how you're branded, how you're presented to the public. And so you had these things all coming together. And then you had... uh, Duke basketball just taking off. And I would say that started my senior year in 83-84. And then Duke's basketball was on the same trajectory and with the extraordinarily high aspirations as the institution. And those two just grew together. And Coach K's success became a really important component in the marketing and branding of Duke 
university. And it's a unique relationship. And the other thing that's important about the basketball component at Duke is that the football component's been pretty weak. So if you're looking at the Power Five landscape, Duke basketball's at the top of the food chain. Duke football's at the very bottom. And so you have this reliance on basketball at the publicity level, at the prestige level, at the branding level, at the marketing level. And then you had Coach K, staying at Duke for 42 years, he stayed loyal to institutions. And that's another strength, I think, of his legacy. One, one of the important components of his legacy is his fidelity to institutions. And he's one of these rare people that can make institutions better. And he sticks with them because he is absolutely loyal to the institutions that he is affiliated with. And I'm going to talk about some of those institutions here in a second, but in Coach K's and, and Duke basketball's relationship to the university and, and its aspirations, you had this perfect storm of events, in my judgment, that included all the things I just mentioned. And when I think about Duke as an institution. I've been connected to Duke my entire life in more ways than most people. I've seen it as a, a Durham native. I've seen it as a student. I've seen it as a basketball player. I've seen it as an alumni, as an employee. My wife has worked in the medical center. She's a physician there. She's worked there for almost 25 years. I've lived in Durham for most of my life. And I, I have a, a long-term relationship to the university. And when I look at the growth uh, of the university since the early 1980s and, and the launch from this 1979 retrenchment effort, I see Duke basketball and Coach K and the institutional aspirations and the institutional interests this this helixed spiral going up and up and up and up, and they're inseparable. And I think what people don't understand, if you're not at ground zero in the Duke world, is how how much Coach K has done at the institutional level. He has been a tireless worker and an ambassador for Duke University. And I think the extent of that, it's almost impossible to, to quantify or to value. But at the same time, he's also been very involved and generous in the Durham community. And he started a community center named after his mother, that is in a, a neighborhood in Durham that has some challenges. And it's, it's education-based, and it's just a great program. And he's connected there. He's connected to the alumni base. He's connected to the institutional interests. He's connected to powerful people. He brings all of the success that he has enjoyed professionally, personally, through Duke basketball to the benefit of the institution. And I, I almost hesitate to say this, but this is true. There are a critical mass of people in certain corridors of the university community who aren't that crazy about the influence that Duke basketball has. And I've had some personal experience with that way of thinking. And at times, some of the hostility has come from very high places. And Coach K's fidelity to institutions just rises above that. And I don't know how many university presidents he's, he has served under, but he's outlasted uh, most of them. And he's moved on to the next phase and the next phase of growth for the university. And he's seen it all. But Coach K is uh, loyal to the Catholic Church. That's an important part of his life. He's loyal to West Point. That's an important part of his life. And the United States military. And you know, I've talked about the community, the Durham community, and of course, Duke, and just really underscore Duke. And then USA Basketball. What Coach K did with USA Basketball, I think, doesn't get the credit that it should. And there have been some criticisms of the length of his tenure there and all that stuff. 
But you have to remember, 2004, we had a disaster with with our Olympic team. And then Coach K took over for the 2008 Olympics, and he and Jerry Coangelo looked at USA basketball in a much different way. And they and Coach was looking at it from a structural standpoint, and there were some structural deficiencies in the talent pipeline because we field national teams through the uh, USA basketball banner going down into high school. And Coach K looked at that and said, look, we need to have a pipeline that, that comes through. We need to rethink how we are operating the pool of available MBA talent. And then we need to get these guys motivated. And in, in 2004, what I saw was a, a really a lack of motivation. And, and that had been building for years. It was nothing about the, the people who were running it in 2004. That was a, the end point, the logical end point of, I think, some of the lack of attention to the structural issues. But Coach K came in and he completely remade the, the structure of USA basketball. And that requires a longer term commitment. You can't do that in one cycle, I don't think. And so that's why some of this criticism about his tenure... I didn't buy into that because I, I thought, look, this is a long-term project and Coach K wants to leave it better than he got it. And he did. But one of the things that doesn't get much attention in addition to the gold medals and the important relationships that he, he developed with the best players in the world was that these lower level teams, these younger teams, these age-based national teams all started winning international tournaments. So you had success going down to the earliest age group up through high school, into college, and then into the actual Olympic team. And so you, you had a, a really important structural change that improved the overall product. That's the way that Coach K thinks about things. And he made a commitment to that institution. I view USA Basketball as an institution. And his loyalty and commitment to that institution made it better. And that's, I would say that's true for all of these institutions that he has been so loyal to. He's one of these rare people, and I think increasingly rare people, who understands the importance of institutions, and he makes commitments, he stands by them, and he makes the institutions better. That is gold, and I think in a time when our faith in institutions is really at a low point, and that's across the board, the most important institutions in our country are, I think, suffering from a, a lack of trust and a lack of confidence. And the only way that can be restored is through people like Coach K, who are willing to make the commitment and make it a long-term commitment and leave the institution better off than you found it. And reflecting on Coach K's legacy, that's what I see as important. And coming into this game on Saturday, if I, I live in the Triangle area. I'm in Wake Forest, North Carolina, which is uh, kind of a outlying suburb of Raleigh. It's about 50 minutes from Durham. And so I don't get back there as much. But in this area, the, the buzz is, this is an incredible buzz. And this is like one of the toughest tickets in the history of college sports. It's like the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Coach K was very gracious and invited all the former players back. And I've been talking to some guys I haven't seen in, in decades. And we're going to have, have a good time and all that. But I can promise you, I can promise you that all the qualities that I just listed that have made Coach K the, the best college coach in the history of the game are going to be on full display in the way that he gets this team ready for this game. He is not going to be pulled away. He is focused on this game. It's going to be a challenge for the kids. I, I, you know, when I think about this game, I'm thinking, what's going on in the heads of, of the players? What's the space like in, in the locker room? What's the headspace like? 
And Coach K is going to put them where they need to be. And then it's going to be up to them to own that moment because it's their moment. This game is their game as much as it is Coach K's game. And people may disagree with that, but he's going to have them ready. That's what's made him great. So I, I'm really excited for the weekend and for, uh, for the game on Saturday. And we'll see what happens. You never know. You just never no in the Duke Carolina rivalry. So I just want to close this out with just a, a couple of thoughts on my senior year and why I think it was so important. And this may seem kind of anticlimactic after my discussion of Coach K, but I just feel like I want to get it in there. But that season was on the backside of a 10 and 17 season. Coach K was under enormous pressure. We had a pretty tough schedule and, and a lot of the non-conference teams that we played, even teams that weren't like marquee power five teams, wound up making it to the NCAA tournament. And we played uh, 34 games. We finished 24 and 10 and 18 of those games were decided by five or less points. And we won, of those 18 games, we won 12. We won a lot of really close games and against a loaded ACC and we finished the year ranked 14th in the country. I went to the finals of the ACC tournament, lost to Maryland. We ran out of gas. And then we went to the NCAA tournament, got a bye uh, in the first round, and then lost by a bucket to a very talented University of Washington team that had Detlef Schrempf had a, had a great game, a German player who had a nice NBA career. But that roster was was really thin. And we had, of course, Johnny and Mark and, and David Henderson and Jay Billis. And, and then Tommy Amaker came in. And so Tommy Amaker was a freshman and he was really the missing piece. And Tommy was so important to that team. And he's one of my favorite all-time point guards. I just love the way he played. We, we, we roomed together on the road and he's just a phenomenal person. I just can't say enough about, about Tommy. But I had to try to stay in front of him in practice every day. And that's pretty pretty tough. And he's a pretty damn good defender. In fact, he won National Defensive Player of the Year when he was at Duke and trying to get into an offense with the best defensive player in the country in my face. So, But I loved competing against him in practice. But he was really the, the missing piece. And the other thing about that team that I think people forget is that we didn't have much margin for error on the roster. So we went through that season really with a seven-player rotation and that's pretty thin. And we were so lucky we didn't have a big injury. Now, I look back on that season and if Johnny or Mark had, or David Henderson, David played a huge role and he came off the bench, but man, he was so good. He was one of these guys who could actually match up with Jordan. He was a very good defender uh, against Michael Jordan and he welcomed that challenge. He's a tough son of a bitch. But if one of those guys had gone down or Tommy had gone down with a serious injury, that season goes upside down immediately. And we were just really lucky in that regard. And a lot of things came together. But And the team, we, we, we had a trip to France at the beginning of that year. And the NCAA allows you to do that every four years or something. So we went to France. Tommy couldn't come. That would have been great if he could have. But because he didn't, I got to get some playing time. I was actually a pretty big hit in France. I got some PT I wouldn't have gotten. But so the, the core of that class, you know, the, the Dawkins Allery class was there in Europe. And we came together as a team. And, and I forgot to mention Danny Mahar. Danny was an important component of that team, a, a Canadian. He was a year behind me and he, he was the enforcer. He's a tough, tough guy. He was so important to that team. But you know, if he had gone down, that's a huge loss to the, to the team. So any of those guys go down, we're in trouble. But we, we played in France before the season and it gave us an opportunity to really come together as a team. And we played professional teams there and we had good success. And I think we took that into the preseason and we really hit the ground running that season. And then a couple of things happened during that season that were pivotal in Coach K's career. And the first 
was a victory over the University of Virginia in in January at UVA. And why is that so important? Because the way that the ACC scheduled back then, the teams would play one game usually before Christmas. So in the prior three years I was at Duke, we played UVA in December. And it was like this outlier ACC game that you played before the ACC schedule really started. And then you would play some non-conference games in between. That game was used really as a barometer for where you stood in the ACC. And And in Coach K's first three years, those were the Ralph Sampson years at UVA. And they they had one of the best teams in in the country and one of the most talented teams in the history of the ACC. And it wasn't wasn't just Sampson. He had a great cast around him. But in in those first three years with Ralph Sampson, we never won that game. We never won any game. Uh, UVA ran the table when Sampson was there against us under Coach K. And then Sampson graduates, and UVA still had a great team. People forget that Ralph Sampson didn't go to the Final Four, but the year after he left, my senior year, they, they did go to the Final Four, and they had a really good team. So we go up to UVA for this game, and we beat UVA in University Hall up there. And that was a huge, huge breakthrough. That, to me, was one of the most important and little talked about milestones in the advancement of the program. And I think there was something in the air after that game where we came back and said, yeah, we're going to do some damage here. And we did. And then we had in our trilogy with UNC and in the first game at Cameron, This game got national media coverage for reasons that had nothing to do with the rivalry. In the game before, Maryland had a player who had gotten into trouble, and the Duke fans went pretty hard on him, and it became a national news story, and everybody was worried about how the crazies were going to behave when UNC came in for the next home game. And the crazies came back with just a beautiful response. They were wearing halos and they had signs that said, welcome honored guests. It was just uh, incredible. But that was a game where we took UNC down to the wire. They won, but we took them down to the wire. And I think it was during that game that Coach Smith, he looked at this Duke team and he said, "Uh uh-oh, this is the future of Duke basketball. And it's different than it's been the last few years. And Coach Smith was a very disciplined guy as a coach and very understated. He made his points with with a very sharp chisel, not a sledgehammer. He's exceptionally bright and he didn't miss a trick. If he met you, he remembered your name for life. He was just an exceptional mind, a basketball mind. But he rarely lost his cool. And he lost his cool during that game when he felt like the, the scoring table didn't get a substitute in quickly enough. And so he goes in and he he is banging on the scorer's table. I'm looking at this in real time. He's banging on the scorer's table. I'm like, oh my gosh. And the the scoring panel that the, the operator uses to punch in the score, it flips upside down and then it immediately changed the scoreboard and, and Carolina like all of a sudden had a 20 point lead. <laughs> and then Coach K made some comments after the game about double standards and all that. And Coach Smith was at the top of his game and he had earned that double standard. And then Coach K benefited from it later on in his career. I just love that. He and Coach Smith actually, I think, have a lot in common. And that, that would be an interesting discussion. Two of the best coaches in the history of college basketball there. It was just amazing. But anyway, we lose that game, but we showed that we belonged on the court with that team. And that UNC team was one of the most talented teams in the history of the ACC, and it was just loaded and, and very difficult to to match up against. So, of course, you have the best player in the history of the game, Michael Jordan. Then you have Sam Perkins, who created all kinds of matchup issues. He was very difficult to defend. 
Then you had Brad Doherty, a 6'11 post-type player, but he could face the basket. He was really versatile and, again, created all kinds of matchup problems. And then you had Kenny Smith at the point, just a phenomenal point guard. You had Matt Doherty, who was sort of a role player on that team, but he was a great leader, and he really, I think, provided some structure for that team. And then you had role players, uh, most of whom were McDonald's All-Americans. So you were looking at a daunting task. I mean, you, you look at our roster next to the UNC roster and a kind of player-by-player down-the-list uh, comparison and then the matchups. You look at that on paper and say, this Duke team doesn't have a chance. And we weren't super big, but we had really tough players at the positions that looked like we had bad matchups. And Mark Allery, for example, he was an incredible defender and he was able to match up with Sam Perkins. And Perkins was the essential ingredient in many ways when it came to exploiting matchups and Mark really did a great job with Perkins. And so we matched up well with that UNC team, despite what appeared to be uh, a real imbalance at the firepower level. Then the last game of the regular season, we played at UNC and we lost in double overtime. And that was an instant classic game. And Matt Doherty hit a running 15-footer as time expired to send the game into overtime. And we just didn't have, we didn't have the depth of the firepower to, to stay with Carolina through two overtimes. And then uh, a week after that, in the ACC tournament, after beating Georgia Tech in an overtime game and then turning around the next day, we're facing UNC again in, this, in the ACC semis. And the game played out in a similar script to the two regular season games. And we got off to a great start. And at halftime, I think we were up by eight points, 40 to 32. And our team really felt confident going into the locker room. Then Carolina made a run in the second half and they, they tied it up. And a lot of teams in that situation would have folded under Carolina's uh, superior firepower. And we didn't do that. That was a sign of the, the toughness of this team. And the game was back and forth uh, down to the last possession, and we were up 77 to 75, and Carolina had the last possession. They had the ball with three seconds left, had to get a shot off in that time, and they had to go three-quarters court because they got the ball out. Actually, it was right in front of our bench, and uh, Matt Doherty was set to throw the inbounds pass, and he's the guy you want making that pass in that circumstance, and it was, on again, on our side of the court in front of our bench, and so I had a clear line right down the sideline. And the pass was intended for Jordan, and Jordan broke out towards the sidelines down the court, and Matt threw the ball to him, and I had a perfect line on the ball, and it became a curveball, and it started to curve away from Jordan. He was getting pretty close to the sideline, and as the ball was nearing Jordan, it just started to curve a little bit more, and it went out of bounds. And as that ball faded out of bounds, our bench just erupted. And, and we really felt like this was this was going to happen. This thing was really going to happen after two very close but disappointing games in, in the regular season. And we win the game. We beat North Carolina. And I think this put Coach K's even kill thing to the test. But I got to tell you, 
after that win. I just think there there was a, a sense in the locker room, and it was just an incredible sense. It was incredible on the court. We all went crazy, and people were hugging each other. And it wasn't just that we beat this UNC team. That's an achievement in and of itself because of the, the uh, amazing talent that they had in the, under the tutelage of, of one of the best coaches in the history of the game. And they played well. It wasn't a game where they underachieved. They played well, and we beat them. And I think that, that what we knew at that time is that we had arrived. This program had arrived and there was nothing but opportunity and blue sky and open road ahead for Duke basketball. And the scene in the locker room after that game was unlike anything that I had ever experienced. And I think it was one of those rare times when we saw the importance of the moment in the moment. Most of the time, some of the most important milestones in, in our lives or with teams or with institutions, they come and go and you don't really realize it uh, until you have the benefit of hindsight. We knew in that moment, in that game, in that locker room, that we were in a historic moment for the future of Duke basketball. And it was just a beautiful thing. So with that, I think I'm going to close this thing out. As always, I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Thank you.